you'll take your Bible with me today and turn to Numbers chapter 21. I have just two messages left from the life of Moses. That'll be 20 messages from the life of Moses that we will have, uh, we will have looked at. Uh, next week we will talk about Moses dying and uh, why he did not get to enter into the promised land. But today I want to take you to a, a, a section of Scripture, passage of Scripture in Numbers 21 verses 4 to 9 that, that maybe you've heard, maybe you know, maybe you don't know. It's almost an obscure kind of a text that's stuck in here, but it has such great significance that I don't want you to miss it. Probably a lot of you have seen some of the Indiana Jones movies. I'm told that there's many, they're as much as 30 plus years old, if you go all the way back to the first one. I have watched several of them, enjoyed them, and had fun watching them. There was one particular Indiana Jones movie where they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant, obviously looking for the Ark of the Covenant, and they're digging out in a desert area, trying to get to it before the Nazis can get to it. And they find an opening to an underground room. They move the, the thing that's sealing off that, that underground room so that they can look down into it. And when they look down into it, they say, it looks like the floor is moving. They take a torch, if you have seen it, they take a torch and they drop it down into that room and on the floor of that room are literally hundreds if not thousands of snakes crawling all through the room, crawling over each other. Of course, this is fiction, uh, but stop and think for a moment, uh, you know, what that would be like. I, I remember in the scene that when Indiana Jones looks down into the room and he sees that his snakes the famous little saying is, he says, is snakes. It would have to be snakes because he hates snakes. But by the way, I hate snakes. Uh, the only good snake as far as I'm concerned is a dead snake. Uh, I realize that for the, the ecology, the, you know, the system that we live in, that snakes have a purpose and I don't want them all dead, but I just want them out of my yard. I, I don't want to be anywhere near them. I don't want to be around them. I want them to be gone as far as possible. Can you imagine being in a situation like this, if this were real, uh, about, you're about to read a place where it is real. Can, can you imagine being in a situation like this? Uh, I mean, there'd be a sense of, of fear, a sense of anxiety, uh, a sense of uncertainty. There'd be all kinds of emotions that would be welling up within you, right? Uh, there'd be all these different kinds of emotions that are welling up within you, uh, you know, just trying to preserve your life. You know, all of that is fiction. But there is a story that's found in the book of Numbers from the life of Moses that is not a story of fiction. And it really is. You know, the snakes on the plane. This really is a snakes in the camp kind of a story. But before we read it, beginning in verse 4, I sort of want to tell you the story, and then we're going to read it. The children of Israel had been set free from the Egyptians, but because they didn't believe God, they weren't allowed to go into the promised land until the older generation had all died. It was going to take 40 years till the older generation had died. That time is just about up, and all of the older generation is gone except for a handful, and they will be dead very shortly, except for Joshua and Caleb. They will be dead very shortly. What has grown up is this new generation, and this new generation, God says, is going to be the generation that I'm going to take into the promised land, and they're going to possess it, and they're going to enjoy it. 
And so one of Moses' last responsibilities was to lead this younger generation to the staging area where they were going to get ready to cross over the Jordan and go into the promised land. To make that journey, Moses wanted to go on what's called the King's Highway. The King's Highway is a north-south route. It's a direct route. It's a common trade route. And that would have been the easiest, the most direct path for them to take to get to that staging area for what would be the conquest of the promised land. But they had to make an appeal to the people who possessed that land in that part of the King's Highway. And they were the Edomites. If you don't know anything about the Edomites, they were the descendants of Esau. And Esau and Jacob, the brothers, the animosity that existed continued all of these generations later, continued. And when Moses made a request of the Edomites that these younger, this younger generation be allowed to pass through that territory on the king's highway, uh, the king of Edom said, no way, nothing doing. You're not coming our direction. Moses made another appeal. Would you let us go? We won't touch anything. We won't eat anything. We won't drink any of your water. If you'll just let us go through on the king's highway through the land of Edom. And there was nothing doing. The king of Edom said, no way. You're not coming this way. Well, Moses had to take them then around the land of Edom. That was obviously not the most direct route. It was a much longer route to have to take. It was also a route that took them through a lot more difficult territory, where the King's Highway would have been much easier territory to pass. This longer route was going to take them through much more difficult territory to have to traverse. And so as they are beginning this journey and they're moving on this longer route through this more difficult territory, well, what the younger generation did is what the older generation had done on numerous occasions. They began to complain. They began to grumble. They began to fuss. They blasphemed God. They they weren't happy with what God was doing with them. They weren't happy that they were being taken out of the way in order to get to that staging area to cross over into into the land of, of Canaan. They weren't happy with the food that God had been providing for them. You realize for, for almost 40 years that God had provided for them every single day what they needed by way of food and what they needed by way of water. If he had done it for 40 years, don't you think he would have continued to do it? And did you realize that for 40 years their clothes never wore out? Can you imagine, ladies, you'd never have to go down to the store and buy another dress or another pair of sandals. Their shoes never wore out. Their clothes never wore out. That's how God had taken care of them while the older generation was dying off and the newer generation was coming to power. And now they have learned apparently pretty well from their fathers and their grandfathers about complaining. You would think that the fathers and grandfathers would have said to the younger generation, look, when it comes your turn to enter the promised land, don't do what we did. But if they did that, we don't know. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. What we do know is that this younger generation began doing exactly what their fathers and their grandfathers had done. They started complaining and blaspheming God and complaining about the provision of God. And God punished them as a result. And the punishment was that he sent venomous snakes into their encampment. Hundreds and thousands of snakes Can you imagine you walk out of your tent and and there are snakes everywhere you look. They're all around you. And and you can't imagine, how am I going to get around these snakes? How am I going to keep from getting bitten? 
And when people were bitten by the snakes, they died. There was no anti-venom. There was no cure for the bite. Uh, They were dying. And so as many of them died, some of the leaders come to Moses and they say, Moses, you've got to go to God and you've got to ask God to take away these snakes. You've got to ask God to take away these snakes. Moses goes to God. He intercedes. What he's done on numerous other occasions, he intercedes on behalf of these people. And God says, I'm not going to take away the snakes, but I'm going to give you a remedy. Hear that. I'm not going to take away the snakes, but I'm going to give you a remedy. God said, Moses, I want you to take some brass, maybe copper, a bright metal. I want you to take it and I want you to form it into the shape of one of these serpents, one of these snakes. I want you to put it on top of a pole, and I want you to extend that pole high into the air, and then you tell all the people that when you're bitten by one of these snakes, if you want the anti-venom, that is, if you want my cure, you have to look at that snake. And if you look at that snake, you will live. Now, obviously, that required that they believe God, right? It meant that they're going to look. It means I believe what God has just told me. If I look at that snake, then I'm going to live. And so there were many as, uh, who were bitten by these snakes who looked and they lived. Now follow along the story now that you know it in a general fashion. Follow along the story in Numbers chapter 21 beginning in verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Some translations say they became impatient. That is, the the word means both of those, discouraged and impatient. It's the idea that they were under such pressure, things were so difficult, they got very discouraged, and in the discouragement they became impatient on the way. Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And many, circle that word, many of the people of Israel died. Circle that word, died. Many died from these snake bites. Anyone bitten by a snake died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And thus, God didn't remove the serpents, the snakes. God gave them a remedy for the snake bites. Now, if you're one of those who keeps notes, there's six words I want you to write down because I want you to remember them in just a few moments. They are so incredibly important. The first word is that this remedy was necessary. This remedy was necessary. These people were going to be bitten by these snakes, and they were going to die. And so there had to be a remedy provided. It was necessary that God provide a remedy. There was no anti-venom. There there was no homeopathic kind of medicine that you could put on these wounds left by these snakes and somehow you'd save your life alive. There were no doctors that could treat them from from the bite of these snakes. 
The only hope they had was that serpent that was placed on that pole. And if they didn't look, they would die. And it was necessary. What God was doing here was necessary. The second word I'd have you to write down is the word gracious. This is gracious. You know, God could have looked at these people and said, look, you're just like your parents and your grandparents. You're just filled with criticism and complaining and grumbling and griping. You blasphemed me. You blasphemed Moses. I don't think I ought to put up with you anymore. I'm, I'm tired of putting up with you. I'm going to let you all die. I'm going to let all of you ultimately be bitten and let all of you die from the venom. He could have done that, but that's not the God we serve, is it? We serve a God who is merciful. We serve a God who is gracious. We serve a God who does for us what we don't rightfully deserve. He does for us uh, for what we do not rightfully deserve. God does more for us than we could ever deserve. God is a gracious God, and God was acting graciously toward his people rather than just letting them die out here uh, going around Edom. The third word is the word inclusive. This word, this, this uh, remedy left nobody out. From the youngest to the oldest, if they would look to that, that serpent on that pole, they would be healed of the venom. That anti-venom that God had provided would be applied to their lives and they would be healed. There's a painting of, of this scene. If you ever get to see it, you'll want to stop and take note of it. There's a painting of this scene and you see the pole and the serpent lifted up on the, on the pole and around the, the pole there are all of these people who are there and they're looking up and you can see the marks of the bite from the snake, but you can see the snakes falling away because they're looking up to this serpent and the snakes are falling away. But back in the back of this crowd, there's a mother who is coming and she's got her young son with, with her. And the young son is too short to be able to see over the taller people that are in front of him. And so she reaches down and she picks him up and she lifts him up over the crowd and directs him so that he can see that serpent, so that the serpent that had bitten him, he would be cured. I mean, it was inclusive. From the youngest to the oldest, uh, from uh, those who lived at a distance to those that were close, all they had to do was to look and live. It was inclusive. Uh, the fourth word is the word assured. It was assured that if they looked, they'd live. How did they know for sure that if they looked, they'd live? Well, they had, first, they had God's word on it, first of all, didn't they? God had said, if you'll just look, you'll live. They had God's word on it. But then they had the testimony of others. There were others who had looked, and the result was they had lived. The, the venom had not killed them, and they had lived. And the result was that the story began to spread. If you'll just look, you'll live. You know, there must have been some who were stubborn, like some stubborn people I know that are like me, sometimes stubborn, who said, that can't be that easy. There's no way that could be possible. There's no way that looking at a serpent, maybe they stayed in their tent and they died. Maybe they stayed at a distance and they died. But the reality was for anyone who would look, they would live, and they were assured of that because they had God's word on it. The fifth word is immediate. It was immediate. It didn't take hours. It didn't take days. It didn't take months. It didn't take years. As soon as they looked, immediately they were healed. It was better than any medicine you could have ever given to them as an antivenom. I mean, this was the miraculous work of God. This was the supernatural work that God was doing. It was immediate. As soon as they looked, the serpents fell off and the venom no longer affected them. It was immediate. And the sixth word is the word simple. This remedy was simple. Uh, it was simple. 
It wasn't complex. It wasn't complicated. There weren't great hoops you had to jump, jump through in order to be able to, to look and live. All you had to be willing to do is to believe God and look, and you would live. Now, for the most part, when you see this story that we've just read, and I've, I've told you about here in Numbers chapter 21, it most, for the most part, it would be an obscure story stuck away in the Old Testament that we might read with some curiosity or some interest, but it wouldn't hold a lot of, of influence over us or impact us in significant ways, except for the fact that Jesus picks up this story and applies it to himself. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, Jesus has begun his ministry. He's been teaching his words and his works were becoming better known and more obvious and more people were, were aware of him. And there was no way to deny the power of his words or the power of his works. And one night, there's a man by the name of Nicodemus, one of the religious ruling class of the day who comes to Jesus he came at night. He might have come at night because that was the easiest time to talk to Jesus when the fewest number of people would have been there to disturb him. He may, he may have come at night because he didn't want anybody else to see that he had gone to Jesus to talk to Jesus, trying to figure out how Jesus could do these mighty works and speak these mighty words as he was doing. And he begins by saying to Jesus, we know you've come from God. Nobody could do these kinds of works if they hadn't come from God. And Jesus moves right past the observation that Nicodemus says. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. You must be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. May I just stop here? May I tell you, you must be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus couldn't figure out what Jesus was talking about. He said, Jesus, you mean I've got to go back in my mother's womb and be, a, be born a second time? And, and, and Jesus stopped Nicodemus and said, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a spiritual birth, a birth that comes from above, a birth that happens because of the Spirit of God at work. I'm talking about a supernatural birth in your life. Nicodemus, Unless you're born from above, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And while he's explaining all of this to Nicodemus, who finds himself rather confused for most of this conversation, Jesus picks up the story in Numbers chapter 21, and Jesus applies it to himself. Notice, if you will, beginning in verse 14, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, and as, circle the word as, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, circle the word so, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now let's stop for a moment. What does it mean to be lifted up? When the Apostle Paul uses this particular Greek word, he often uses it to talk of exaltation. Lift up Jesus to exalt him, to give him praise and to bring him glory. But this particular word is used in the Gospel of John four times, just in four verses. And every time in those four verses where it's used to be lifted up means to be lifted up on the cross. So that what Jesus was saying when he told Nicodemus that he had to be lifted up like the serpent was lifted up, he had to be lifted up, Jesus was saying, I have to be lifted up on the cross. And you'll notice that he uses the word must. 
in two of the four verses where John talks about Jesus being lifted up, he uses the word must. I must be lifted up. There is no other way. There is no other hope for mankind. There is no other remedy for mankind's sin. There there is no way for us to be delivered from our sin. I must, Jesus says, I must be lifted up on the cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent, he says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. And he picks up that Old Testament story and he uses it as an example of himself that as the serpent was lifted up for everyone to see, so he must be lifted up on the cross for everyone to see. Do you know what Jesus did for you on the cross? On the cross of Calvary, Jesus took your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world on himself. A righteous God cannot simply overlook sin and pass it by and do nothing about it. He would no longer be a righteous God if he did so. He must deal with mankind's sin. The truth of the matter is, if we were separated from God, we would be getting what we rightfully deserve. Had we been nailed to that tree, we would have gotten exactly what we deserved. There had to be one who was sinless and who was perfect, who could be a vicarious atonement. Somebody in our place, somebody to take our place, who could take on himself what he did not deserve, and that one was his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And hanging on that cross, God took the penalty of your sins and my sins and placed them on his son, and Jesus became sin for us. Lifted on that cross, he became sin for us. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? Verse 15, that. Circle the word that. That. Here's the reason. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see what he says? If you'll look to me, you can have eternal life. If you'll believe in me, you can have eternal life. So that what Jesus does is Jesus picks up what would have been an otherwise obscure story from the Old Testament about snakes in the camp where a lot of the Israelites died, some of them because they wouldn't, all of them because either they wouldn't look at the serpent or because they didn't look at the serpent that was lifted up on the pole. Jesus takes up that story and he brings that illustration and he says, now look, that's me. I have to be lifted up. I must be lifted up because if I'm lifted up, those who believe in me, those who look to me can have everlasting life. Those who look to me can have eternal life. And Jesus takes a rather obscure story from the Old Testament about snakes in the camp, and Jesus brings it into the New Testament. He says, look, as that serpent was lifted up, so must I be lifted up. Now think of those six words that we talked about a few moments ago. When you think about what Jesus did, it was necessary. It was necessary because every one of us are sinners. It was necessary because every one of us comes into this world as sinners. There's a mindset of a lot of people that says there's a whole lot of good in all of us if we just get out of the way and let the good happen. Well, there may be a little bit of good in some of us, but the fact of the matter is there's a whole lot of bad in all of us because all of us come into this world separated from God and all of us come into this world as sinners before God. What happened with 
with Adam in the garden is passed down from one generation to the next so that nobody, no matter where they're, they're born, in America or on the other side of the earth in a third world country, is born into this world anything other than a sinner. And they're going to die. The wages of sin is death. They're going to die. And Jesus being lifted up on the cross as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. It's necessary if we're going to be forgiven of our sins. Think of the second word. It's the word gracious. God could have looked at mankind who came into this world, all of us as sinners, and He could have said, you know what? They're going to get what they deserve. They're all sinners. Even if they're not all the worst sinners they can possibly be, the fact of the matter is everybody is a sinner. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all come short of the glory of God. None of us can live up to the perfection of a holy God. And he could have looked at us and said, you know what? You're going to get what you deserve. But that's not the God we serve, is it? We serve a God who is gracious, and we serve a God who is good, and we serve a God who is merciful. And God, in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, allowed His Son to do for us what we did not rightfully deserve, because our God is gracious. Think about the word inclusive. There's nobody left out. I don't know if you know what the word whoever means, but the last time I checked, whoever means exactly what it says. It means whoever. It's inclusive. Somebody who tells you God's chosen this one, but not this one, and this one, and not this one, has misread the Scripture. They may be genuine, they may be sincere, they may be my friends or your friends, but they have misunderstood what the Bible says. When, all, when God says he's given a salvation to all who will receive it, all means all, and that's all all means. It means it's inclusive. Anybody can receive what Jesus has done. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life it's inclusive you're not left out your children aren't left out the worst sinner on the face of the earth isn't left out the person in the third world isn't left out nobody is left out of the offer think of the word assured how do we know this is true because we have God's word on it we have God's word on it that's what he said here if you believed on him if you believed in him you wouldn't perish but you'd have everlasting life you'd have eternal life isn't that what he said you have his word on it you have the assurance of it this has to do with the certainty of our relationship to god listen i'm not certain of my relationship with god because how i how i feel on any given day should i say that again I'm not certain of my relationship with God because of how I feel on any given day or because I've done better some days and worse other days. Because I've done more good some days than I have on other days. I'm assured of having eternal life with God because I have God's Word on it. We're assured not just simply by God's Word, we're assured by the testimony of hundreds of thousands of people who have lived, who have looked to Jesus and found in Jesus the solution to their sin problem. And they come telling us their story, and they come giving us their testimony, and they remind us over and over again, it's Jesus that saves. It's Jesus that saves. The fifth word is the word, it's immediate. Can I tell you, when you look to Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, that's what Jesus 
related looking to. Looking to the serpent was equivalent to believing in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, when you look to Jesus, the cure of our sin problem is immediate. Instantaneously, we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Instantaneously, the blood of Jesus washes away our sins. Instantaneously, we become possessors of the gift of eternal life. Instantaneously, we're made sons of the living God. Instantaneously. I'm not hoping one day to be a son or to have eternal life. I have it. You have it. If you've looked to Jesus, it's immediate. It happens this moment. Can I tell you, a lot of times we lead people to pray a sinner's prayer. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But may I tell you that most of the time before anybody ever prays a prayer, they've already been saved. Because as soon as you turn your heart to Jesus, as soon as you believe that Jesus is the answer, the only answer, as soon as you believe that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again, as soon as you believe it, at that moment, whether you word it into a prayer or not, at that moment, you become a child of the living God and immediately your sin is dealt with. And think of the sixth word. The sixth word is simple. It's simple. It's not complex. It's not complicated. Oh, wait a minute. It was complex and complicated for Jesus. The most ignominious death that's ever been died was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. The most horrific death anyone has ever died. Think about it for a moment. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested and taken away to his crucifixion. Think about him looking into that cup and sweating drops of blood. The pressure he was under in those moments wasn't about his physical suffering that he would endure on the cross. He knew that before he came. He was looking into that cup and he saw the dregs of sin and the separation that he would endure from the Father. God the Son would for the first time in eternity forever be separated from God the Father. God the Son separated from God the Father because God the Son became sin for us. He did all the hard work. He did the heavy lifting. He did all that was necessary so that it would be simple for you and for me. We can bring a young child and we can introduce that child to what Jesus Christ has done for them and that child can put his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can take, to, take you to a man who's crucified on a cross next to Jesus, who recognizes in those moments that Jesus is who he claims to be, and he is doing what he claimed he was going to do. And that man is told, today you will be with me in paradise. You can go to the oldest man who's living, who couldn't get off his bed to do anything for Jesus as far as serving or working for him. But in those moments, if he'd look to Jesus, in those moments, he would become a child of the living God. It's simple. It's not hard. Please, don't get upset with this preacher. When I get angered by people who make the gospel complex and complicated, there's people who want to front load the gospel and who want to back load the gospel who want to take verses about discipleship and following Jesus and impose them on the message of the gospel, on the message of evangelism. Here's the message of Jesus. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. 
That's how simple it is. As a 16-year-old boy, I believed that Jesus did that for me. And immediately, in that instant, I became a child of the living God. And I was made right with God. You understand, Jesus takes a rather obscure story about snakes in the camp that most of us would read with curiosity and wonder, what in the world does all this mean? We might even have a tendency to read it through the eyes of an Indiana Jones as if it's some kind of fiction, when it's not fiction at all. And Jesus picks up that story out of the life of Moses and says, look, look to me. I am the one who saves. Can I tell you today that you got to look to Jesus. You have no other hope than Jesus. There aren't multiple roads that lead to heaven. There's not multiple ways to be right with God. There's one way, and that way is Jesus. Is that narrow-minded? It's no narrower than, 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 than Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's a broad way that leads to destruction, and a lot of people are on it, but there's a narrow way. And Jesus is the gate to that way. And the only way to the narrow is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to look to Jesus if we're going to live eternally. And he made it simple. It was necessary. It was gracious. It was inclusive. It was assured. It was immediate. And it was simple. And aren't we thankful? for what Jesus has done for us. I come to you today to tell you that that's the gospel. And the gospel invitation and the gospel offer is made to anyone and to everyone who will hear it. I can't help but wonder. I've surmised already, but let me surmise again for a moment. I can't help but surmise about some of those in that Jewish encampment when they were bitten by one of those snakes, if they didn't hear word from somebody that said, all you got to do is look at the serpent, lift it up on that pole and you'll live. Just look and you'll live. Just look and you'll live. And there was somebody in that Jewish encampment who said it can't be that way. Can't be that way. Not possible. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going down there and look at that. I'm, no way I'm going to do that. I'm not going to make a fool out of myself. And they stayed there wherever they were in the encampment and they refused to, to look at that serpent and live. You know, there's a whole lot of people who are just like that. They're told the gospel story. It's explained to them again and again. They even know the convicting work of the Holy Spirit of God in their hearts. And they're too stubborn to say, He is my only hope. I'm going to look to Jesus and live. You know, something that interests me about the story in Numbers 21 is that before God gave them the remedy, they had to acknowledge, and they did acknowledge, we have sinned. We have sinned. We live in a society that plays down sin. We don't want to call it sin. It's just a mistake. Whatever other word we might use on behalf of it, we, we play it down as if it's no big deal. We explain it away as part of our personality type. We find ways to minimize the significance of our sins as if they don't matter. They're not really sins at all. 
And I tell you, the reason there are not more people who are looking to Jesus to live is because there's not enough people who see themselves as they really are before God. We are all sinners before God. And while God makes special, I believe, makes special provision for those that are too young to make a decision to look and live while they're little, there comes a place in everybody's life when we have a responsibility to look to Jesus and look to Jesus for ourselves. It doesn't say that a father could look, to Jesus, could look to the serpent on behalf of his son or a wife could look to the serpent on behalf of her husband or a husband could look to the serpent on behalf of his wife. said that each one had to look for himself or herself. When we see ourselves as God says we are, suddenly we begin to recognize that we are without hope apart from Christ. There's an illustration that I want to share with you. I looked at a lot of different stories of people giving their testimony of how Christ changed their lives, and I want to tell you, there are some incredibly powerful testimonies. Can I tell you that some of the most powerful testimonies aren't the ones that come from people who've had the most messed up lives? Some of the most powerful testimonies that I've heard about how Jesus has changed their, their lives is from people who who grew up in the church and grew up uh, believing that Christ was the only way and who at a, some moment in time put his or her faith in the Lord Jesus and never really got involved in all of the evils of this world in which you can get involved. But you listen to them tell their stories and you can hear, you can hear the love they have for the one to whom they have looked and in looking brought life to them as... Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be left lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And they talk about how they look to Jesus. Some that came out of great wickedness and evil, some that came out of lives that we might have thought, some people might have thought, well, they don't even need Jesus. But they knew they needed Jesus, and they put their faith in Jesus, and their lives were dramatically changed by the power of Jesus because they trusted him and they looked to him. But rather than give you a present story, I want to give you an older story, more than 100 years old. You know, one of the things I think we're losing in the church, we're losing our history. We're always looking for something new, and in the process of looking for something new, we're divesting ourselves from the history of our faith. Some of the great moments of history in our faith. And the words I'm about to read to you come from somebody who lived more than 100 years ago, but he illustrates so accurately and so well the two passages of Scripture that I brought together for you this morning. See if you can guess who it is. I will tell you how I myself was brought to the knowledge of the truth. It may happen the telling of that will bring someone else to Christ. It pleased God in my childhood to convince me of sin. I, li I lived a miserable creature, finding no hope, no comfort, thinking that surely God would never save me. At last, the worst came to the worst. I was miserable. I could do scarcely anything. My heart was broken in pieces. Six months did I pray, prayed agonizingly with all my heart, and never had an answer. I resolved that in the town where I lived, I would visit every place of worship in order to find out the way of salvation. 
I felt I was willing to do anything and be anything if God would only forgive me. I set off, determined to go around to all the chapels. This is in England. And I went to all the places of worship. And though I dearly venerate the men that occupy those pulpits now, and did so then, I am bound to say that I never heard them once fully preach the gospel. I mean by that, they preached truth, great truths, many good truths that were fitting to many of their congregation, spiritually minded people. But what I wanted to know was, how can I get my sins forgiven? At last, one snowy day, it snowed so much, I could not go to the place I had determined to go to. And I was obliged to stop on the road, and it was a blessed stop for me. I found rather an obscure street and turned down a court, and there was a little chapel. I wanted to go someplace. It was the primitive Methodist chapel. I had heard of these people from many and how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter. I wanted to know how I might be saved, and if they made my head ache ever so much, I did not care. So sitting down, the service went on, but no minister came. At last, a very thin-looking man came into the pulpit and opened his Bible and read these words from Isaiah. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Just setting his eyes upon me, he said, young man, you are in trouble. You will never get out of it unless you look to Christ. And then, lifting up his hands, he cried out as only I think a primitive Methodist could do, look, look, look. It is only look. I saw at once the way of salvation. Oh, how I did leap for joy at that moment. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like when the brazen serpent was lifted up, they only looked and were healed. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard this word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. And in heaven... I will look on still, still in my joy unutterable. And those are the words of one of the most famous Baptist preachers who ever lived, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. How did he come to know Jesus? He came to know Jesus by looking to Jesus. I'm not even sure anymore how many of us believe in a real hell with real punishment for all of eternity. I'm not even convinced anymore that a lot of the men that are standing in our pulpits today even believe that there is such a place anymore. But I want to tell you on the authority of this book what the Word of God says, what Jesus says. Jesus speaks frequently of that place. I want to tell you on the authority of the Word of God, there is such a place in all who die in their sins having not looked to Jesus will suffer the punishment of their sins for all of eternity. You might think that a minor thing until you get there. We have to look to Jesus. There is no other way. Don't let anybody complicate it. And for those of us who've already looked to Jesus, 
It is our responsibility now to tell others. Not a complex, complicated gospel. It is our responsibility to tell them the simple gospel message. Look and live. Look and live. Look and live. If you'll just look to Jesus, you will live. 